Capital cops were pawns. But as Ray Epps of Fed, January 6th, breaking news on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 324 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Monday, January 16th, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time, a lot of people having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this really different kind of talk show, we're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, there has been a trial going on of the gentleman from northwest Arkansas, who is famous for putting his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk. And no one has been reporting on January 6th for the past two years doing a better job than Julie Kelly over at American Greatness. So let's take a look at her two most recent columns. The first one, what the January 6th videos will show from January 13th, 2023. She says the jury trial of Richard Barnett, the man famously photographed with his feet on the desk in Nancy Pelosi's office January 6, 2021, is underway in Washington, D.C. Nearly two years to the date of his arrest, Barnett finally had a chance to defend himself in court on multiple charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding. But it was not the fiery, outspoken Barnett who provided the most jaw-dropping testimony in the trial so far. To the contrary, one of the government's own witnesses confirmed under defense cross-examination that agents provocateur were heavily involved in instigating the events of January 6. Captain Carnesha Mendoza, a tactical commander for U.S. Capitol Police at the time, testified Wednesday, how a group of agitators destroyed security barriers and lured people to Capitol grounds that afternoon. Defense counsel Brad Geyer said, isn't it true that you had a lot of people, a large quantity of people, walking down two streets that dead-ended at the Capitol? Mendoza answered, yes, sir. Geyer said, and would it be fair to say that at least... At some of the leading edges of that crowd, they contained bad people or provocateurs. Is that fair? Mendoza answered, it's fair. Geyer asked, dangerous people? Mendoza said, yes. Geyer said, violent people? Mendoza said, yes. 
Geyer said, highly trained violent people. Mendoza said, yes. Geyer said, highly trained violent people who work and coordinate together. Mendoza answered, yes. It was a stunning admission, representing the first time a top law enforcement official stated under oath, to my knowledge, that a coordinated, experienced group of agitators engaged in much of the mischief early that day. Under further questioning, Mendoza acknowledged those same individuals pushed through barriers, removed barriers, threw barriers over the side, removed fencing, and eased the flow of people into places where they shouldn't be. This happened around 1 p.m., the same time the joint session of Congress convened to debate the results of the 2020 presidential election. Hiding the pivotal role of still unidentified and uncharged agitators on January 6th is just one reason why the government has successfully sought to conceal thousands of hours of footage captured by the Capitol Police's security system before, during, and after the protest. She says, as I explained in May 2021, Capitol Police immediately designated roughly 14,000 hours of surveillance video as security information that should not be released to the public. Thomas DiBiase, general counsel for Capitol Police, the technical technical owner of the trove of videos, signed an affidavit in March 2021 objecting to the widespread dissemination of footage related to the attempted insurrection. That's what he called it. DiBiase claimed the agency wanted to prevent, quote, those who might wish to to attack the Capitol again, unquote, from accessing interior views of the building. The Department of Justice subsequently labeled the footage as highly sensitive government material subject to strict protective orders in court proceedings. Defendants must comply with onerous rules before viewing any surveillance video associated with their cases. There are, of course, exceptions for any party helping to enforce the narrative that there was an insurrection that day. For example, the House committee handling Donald Trump's post-January 6th impeachment was allowed to use portions of the super-secret reel. So too was HBO in producing its January 6th documentary. The January 6th Select Committee aired extensive, if highly selective, surveillance footage during their televised performances. And that brief clip of Senator Josh Hawley, Republican Missouri, running in a hallway on January 6th, it was clearly an image intended to mock his alleged cowardice that day. And of course, it was Capitol surveillance video. If it's safe to place the video in the hands of Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, the biggest deceiver in Congress, and random HBO film producers, then it's safe to place all the footage in the hands of the American people, which is why calls by Representative Matt Gaetz, Republican of Florida, to fully release the surveillance video are a welcome and necessary step in providing a complete account about the events of January 6th to the public. 
The Committee on House Administration, now under Republican control, is one of two congressional committees with access to the full library of video. Gates said in an interview last week, the recordings, quote, would give more full context to that day rather than the cherry-picked moments that the January 6th committee tried to use to inflame and further divide our country, unquote. That demand undoubtedly will be met with fierce resistance by the same lawmakers, government agencies, and media organizations incessantly bleeding about the need to tell the truth about what happened before and on January 6th. So what exactly will the tapes reveal? The footage, which captured the inside and outside of the building, will show how many agitators and or federal assets were staged at various locations early in the day. Representative Clay Higgins, Republican of Louisiana, might finally get an answer to the question that FBI Director Christopher Wray refused to answer during a congressional hearing last year, whether FBI informants disguised as Trump supporters were planted inside the building prior to the initial breach. To that end, the video could show who instructed two men how to open the two-ton Columbus doors on the east side of the Capitol building, creating an access point for hordes of protesters. Ditto for entry points at other locations. Will the video identify the individuals who erected the so-called gallows featuring an orange noose allegedly built to hang Vice President Mike Pence? Just like the identity of the suspect who allegedly planted the pipe bombs at the DNC and RNC, no one has been identified or charged with constructing that stage on government property, another unanswered question the footage will answer. The public undoubtedly will be shocked to see police officers from Capitol Police and D.C. Metropolitan Police Departments viciously attacking crowds of people assembled outside the Capitol. Mendoza's testimony also confirmed that Capitol Police officers used non-lethal munitions on hundreds of individuals beginning shortly after 1 p.m. Weaponry included pepper balls, projectiles containing a chemical irritant shot from a launcher similar to a paintball gun, gas, rubber bullets, and flashbangs, a less-than-lethal grenade that likely caused the fatal heart attacks of two Trump supporters that afternoon. Not only will the public see what happened to those two men, Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips, but they will also see evidence of the numerous serious injuries inflicted on dozens of people, including children and elderly women, at the hands of police. Are Americans prepared to see how law enforcement handled the dead bodies of Ashley Babbitt and Roseanne Boyland? It will be tough to watch. More importantly, the footage will indicate which cameras were disabled before the protest. The government's claim that security cameras are not installed outside the Columbus doors is questionable at best. A full comparison between the Capitol's closed-circuit television system and the cameras operable on January 6th is a must. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, on Thursday endorsed Matt Gates's calls to release the footage. 
McCarthy told reporters, I think the American public should actually see all what happened. Yes, I'm engaged to do that. If McCarthy follows through on his promise, the world will see the biggest inside job, an actual coup in U.S. history, unfold before their eyes. Not only is it necessary to expose the truth of January 6th, but to exonerate innocent Americans whose lives have been destroyed in the aftermath. So, roll the tapes. That's Julie Kelly over at amgreatness.com, article entitled, What the January 6th Videos Will Show from January 13th of this year. Now, her new article from Monday, January 16th, 2023, is entitled, New Body-Worn Camera Footage from J6 Supports Calls for Release of All Video. And here's what she says. Body-worn camera footage obtained by American Greatness of a D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer on duty on January 6, 2021, shows the chaos unfolding in real time that day and how law enforcement's response to the protest led to rising tension and deadly violence. Officer Terrence Craig, an 11-year veteran of the force, testified last week in the criminal trial of Richard Barnett, the Arkansas man notoriously photographed with his feet on a desk in then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office on January 6, 2021. Nearly two and a half hours of video were captured by Craig's body-worn camera providing an uninterrupted and shocking view of what happened inside and outside the building. Never-before-seen interactions with police and protesters bolster demands by House Republicans to release all surveillance video recorded by Capitol security cameras on January 6. Craig's video starts with a group of D.C. Metro and Capitol Police advancing toward the west side of the building at 2.30 p.m. The first physical breach occurred about 15 minutes beforehand. Capitol Police had used non-lethal munitions such as flashbangs, pepper balls, and tear gas on the crowd assembled outside on Capitol grounds for roughly an hour, the first time in department history that officers were ordered to use such dangerous crowd-control devices on political protesters. D.C. police were ordered to dress in full riot gear, including gas masks, face shields, gloves, and ballistic vests. Under cross-examination by Joseph McBride, one of Richard Barnett's defense attorneys, Craig admitted the officers were fully geared up before taking their positions. McBride asked him, so you're fully geared up, you're strapped up from head to toe. Craig answered, yes. McBride asked, ready to rock and roll. Craig answered, yes. Craig also stated that officers carried a metal asp, A-S-P, like the snake but it's the name for a type of collapsible baton. And rock and roll they did. The footage showed a dramatic shift in tone from the massive crowd assembled on the Capitol lawn as jackbooted cops arrived on the scene. Craig admitted as such. He told McBride it was peaceful heading up to the Capitol. You can hear the noise and the sounds, and you see the officers on the side. But chance of USA, USA quickly dissipated 
as the crowd grew agitated at the sight of police officers, faces obscured while dressed in military-type gear, forming groups on the upper terrace. At least a few SWAT officers can be seen mingling with local police at around 2.45 p.m. Police continue to douse the crowd with chemical spray, even though protesters were not attempting to breach a line of officers down below. Craig entered the rotunda around 2.50 p.m., about five minutes after the fatal shooting of Ashley Babbitt. The area at first appears sparsely populated with protesters and police. In one scene, officers appear to be tending to the injuries of an elderly man lying on the floor. Physical and verbal confrontations started inside the rotunda around 3.10 p.m. As police forcibly tried to move the increasingly packed crowd out of the area. One woman asked the officers, do you feel big and strong now? Does that get you off pushing around a bunch of women, a bunch of blank, unarmed women? A female voice is then heard screaming, claiming she's trying to get out of the building. Craig walks throughout the building at parts chaotic and other parts relatively calm. One man approached Craig to explain the police took his cell phone and asked how he could get it back. Craig's answers are unintelligible, impaired by the gas mask and face shield. The man said as he followed Craig down a set of stairs, Sir, I can't understand you. The man asked Craig, Wait, is this the Capitol? Craig replied, Are you serious? The man said, I've never seen it, underscoring the fact many individuals had never before been in the Capitol and did not know where to go or how to exit. Craig then takes a position outside the building around 3.50 p.m. amid a heavy police presence. The situation is relatively calm. Chance of we the people can be heard. Some police are again confronted by protesters. One unidentified man said to a line of officers, Are you all going to tear gas us? One D.C. Metro police officer nodded his head. Another man shouted, It's we the people, not we the cops. By that point, three Trump supporters were already dead, either wholly or partially due to excessive force. At 4.20, Craig and several other officers suddenly rushed back into the building and marched toward the lower West Terrace Tunnel. The scene of the most violent clashes between police and protesters. This is the same location where police are caught on camera beating women, including Victoria White. And here, Julie Kelly links to an article from December 8th, 2021, that she wrote called January 6th Police Beating Victim Speaks I Could Have Died from Victoria White. As Craig approached the mouth of the tunnel, angry shouts can be heard. One individual yelled at police, you need to stop, stop. Several other men can be heard screaming for help while police spray more chemical gas into the crowd. At least three men and a few officers are seen dragging the lifeless body of Roseanne Boyland to the mouth of the tunnel. Her shirt is pulled up near her head one man is attempting to administer CPR. Previously released footage and eyewitness accounts indicate that Roseanne Boyland 
34 years old, likely died after succumbing to the effects of toxic gas sprayed by police in the enclosed space in what appears to be a beating by another D.C. Metro officer. One man screamed to the officers, She's blanking dead. This is on you, blank, blank. As the officers continue to spray the men trying to tend to Boyland. This is the woman you killed, you blank. Some throw items at the front line of police as Boylan's body is dragged face up through the tunnel and into the building. Physical confrontations with officers continued for another 20 minutes. Craig relayed his version of events to Attorney McBride. He calmly explained, I saw the dead young lady, and they dropped her right in front of me. They just brought her and said, hey, do your job and take care of her. After prosecutors objected to the line of questions, Judge Christopher Cooper instructed Attorney McBride to avoid talking about the circumstances of people dying. Several men involved in the confrontations related to Boylan's death were arrested, detained, and charged with assaulting police officers. The Department of Justice and news media have carefully controlled the narrative, portraying protesters as the perpetrators of violence rather than the victims, while justifying the fatalities of four Trump supporters on January 6th. Boyland was officially pronounced dead at 6.09 p.m., the D.C. coroner, later claimed she died of a drug overdose, a dubious conclusion, given public evidence to the contrary. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, Representative Matt Gaetz, Republican Florida, are on record supporting the release of 14,000 hours of surveillance video from January 6. That demand has been met with some resistance from law enforcement. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who claimed protesters called him a racial slur with no evidence to prove his claim more than two years later, mocked the idea the tapes should be made public. Dunn asked on Twitter, what the blank more y'all want to see? More terrorists beating cops blanks? No, we want the unvarnished truth, not the police version of events. And as Craig's body cam video showed, the American people still have much to learn about what happened on January 6, 2021. That is a great Julie Kelly over at amgreatness.com from January 16, 2023. New article entitled, New Body-Worn Camera Footage from J6 Supports Calls for Release of All Video. Okay, uh, coming up, to what extent... Were a lot of the police there pawns? And how obvious is it that Ray Epps, one of the main instigators of getting people inside the Capitol building, was himself and probably is still a Fed? we got a lot to talk about today on the Doc Washburn Show. Breaking news about January 6th from what is coming out testimony at the trial of Richard Big O. Barnett of Gravette, Arkansas. All right, if you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage 
you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental USA, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, as you know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everybody get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams bed sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams bed sheets. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. You can get a set of Giza Dreams sheets for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. And right now, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. In this economy, instead of buying a new bed, rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer for as low as $29.98. Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Now use that promo code D. WS and you'll get huge discounts on all my pillow bedding, including my pillow Giza Dreams sheets for just twenty nine ninety eight. You know, Mike Lindell's other passion is to support American entrepreneurs and bring manufacturing back to our country. For years, people approached Mike Lindell with great products, but had no way of marketing them. Well, mystore.com was created to give those people a voice and a platform to bring you their amazing products made right here in the USA. MyStore.com has all kinds of great deals on automotive products, bath and beauty, books and video, clothing, decor items, food and drink, garden and patio, health, home improvement, household essentials, kitchen and dining, personal care, sports and outdoors, toys and games, and so much more. 
Now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins right now. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save up to $90 on My Slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins. Marked down to just $49.98 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals and slides for as low as $19.98. Now, what makes My Slippers different? is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My Slippers' patented layers make them ultra-comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. Now remember, that promo code does not stand for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, 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 no. It stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com and MyStore.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, now let's take a look. Julie Kelly recommended this article from a guy named Steve Baker, the pragmatic constitutionalist over at Locals.com. Article entitled, Capital Police were sacrificial pawns on January 6th, Part 1. And he says, When I met with former U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Tariq Johnson, I told him I had previously written that he and his fellow officers were set up as sacrificial pawns on January 6th. He pointed his finger toward my face and said, That's exactly right. They didn't give a blank what happened to us that day. Imagine, if you will, that you were a United States Capitol Police officer who showed up to work January 6, 2021, with no anticipation or expectation of anything other than a normal day at the office. Whether you were a rookie officer or one with 20 years' experience in U.S. Capitol Police, and regardless of your specialized position and training, your on-the-job experience before had been not much more than performing the operations of a glorified tour guide for both VIP visitors and general public tourists to the nation's seat of government. Now, that's an oversimplification given the various units of the U.S. Capitol Police consist of long-gun certified officers, a civil disturbance unit, Criminal Investigation, Intelligence Unit, Dignitary Protection Unit, Containment Emergency Response Team, kind of like a SWAT unit, Hazardous Devices Team, and several other specialized units. Skipping past the initial West Side Barricade breach, at which U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards was knocked unconscious when shoved down by the first violent perpetrators, hitting her head on the concrete steps. Imagine that you were one of the few dozen U.S. Capitol Police officers being ordered to relocate and defend the Lower West Side Capitol Terrace against those initial agitators. Many of them were arriving wearing gas masks, carrying and using blunt force objects, and canisters of a variety of types of pepper spray. I mean, what else might they be carrying concealed under heavy winter clothing. 
you had heard over radio communications that these unexpected visitors had already overrun outer barricades. They're now pushing and pulling against the barricade line you've just arrived to defend. Some of those rioters are breaking apart permanent black metal fencing, turning the various pieces into clubs and projectile spears. You're wearing no protective gear, no helmet, no eye protection, no gas mask. But your job is to now prevent further incursion toward the Capitol building itself, where the entire Congress and Vice President of the United States are currently in session to ratify the Electoral College vote. Already outnumbered by the initial arrival of provocateurs, imagine looking over those heads and shoulders and seeing thousands of other protesters marching toward your position, having no idea of their intentions. As you were defending that line, being shoved, hit with flagpoles and broken pieces of fencing, and assaulted by O.C. spray, you have no idea whether or not those thousands you see approaching also intend violence or might be carrying more lethal weapons. You might rightly assume the possibility you'd never again be going home to your family. U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Tariq Johnson told Joe Hanneman of the Epoch Times and myself that very thing. At one point during the initial violence and chaos of January 6th, Lieutenant Johnson phoned his wife to tell her he might not make it home alive. When one has a crossover conservative libertarian readership like my own, a small handful of topics present no-win scenarios, issues upon which if I take one side or the other, half my readers blast me in the comment sections. If I present a more nuanced, middle-of-the-road, dare I say a pragmatic position, I risk the ire of both sides. The most obvious topic is anything related to our most recent former president. Trump derangement syndrome is real. And as I often point out, it cuts both ways. Another, and the underlying topic of this screed, is all things related to law enforcement. But the libertarianish anarchists, on what, I, on what I define as the far right of the political spectrum, though they will argue with me on that designation, as well as the faux anarchists, F-A-U-X, fake anarchists, of the far left, see Antifa, both subscribe to the acronym we see scrawled on buildings after many riots, ACAB, which stands for All Cops Are, a bad word that starts with a B. The most extreme of these see no justification for any form of local or federal policing. Purist constitutionalists often interpret all police agencies as standing armies and therefore antithetical to founding principles. Many who acquiesce to some justification for police forces are still automatically knee-jerk to blaming the cops when any violent or deadly force is used against private citizens, even before evidence of justification is presented. Then, of course, there are those, mostly from the right, 
who invariably back the blue, even when evidence is presented of unjustifiable use of force. All sides have their rationalizations to defend their respective positions. For this narrative, I would ask all my readers to set aside their own biases and predispositions toward law enforcement, particularly as related to the actions of the U.S. Capitol Police on January 6th. I'll briefly reference the behaviors of the D.C. Metropolitan Police and other agencies, but my study and investigations into those other agencies' actions that day are far exceeded by that of my analysis of the U.S. Capitol Police. Two years hence, many of my initial perspectives have been challenged by increasingly available evidence. For instance, on the evening of January 6th, upon return to my hotel room, Arlington, Virginia, I posted a video to YouTube where I specifically said I had witnessed the majority of the violence being committed by Trump supporters. Then, upon my return home, I sequestered myself away for five days of frame-by-frame analysis of my own videos taken of the Capitol's West Terrace battle line, then continuing into and through the Capitol building. Time and again in that analysis, I experienced a what-the-blank-and-who-the-blank-was-that moments in those video frames. By the time I published my first story about what I had seen that day, all my initial preconceptions from the day itself were challenged. I even concluded that I have a new life axiom. Quote, I'll never again believe anything I don't see with my own eyes, even then consult the videotape, unquote. Our own eyes can deceive us in such a highly kinetic, violent event. It's why every law enforcement officer knows that a dozen witnesses to a violent crime will give a dozen different versions of what occurred. Unless one has ample experience in such events, the shock of unexpected violence causes different people's minds to register and process the episode in diverse and often contradictory ways. He says, I now know beyond a reasonable doubt Many of those frontline agitators and provocateurs who I initially assumed to be Trump supporters were anything but. Were there right-wing militias present? Yes. Left-wing anarchists, Antifa? Most certainly. Did I observe crowd manipulation tactics from professional provocateurs experienced in rallying violence and coordinating movements of large groups? Definitely. Do I know with absolute certainty whom these provocateurs worked for? No, and neither do you. Not yet. What we do know is that the late Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, Michael Stinger, in his last testimony before Congress on February 23, 2021, said, there is an opportunity to learn lessons from the events of January 6th, investigations should be considered as to funding and travel of what appears to be professional agitators. More recently, in the trial of Richard Bigot Barnett, who infamously posed for a photo with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, U.S. Capitol Police Captain Carnesha Mendoza was asked by Defense Attorney Bradford Geyer 
if the if the provocateurs she observed on January 6th were highly trained, violent people who work and coordinate together, Mendoza answered yes. Well, that sounds familiar. In the lead-up to my second story about January 6th, published on February 24th, 2021, my investigations led me to discover and report that several federal agencies, including Army Special Forces operatives, were embedded in the crowd on January 6, 2021, at the Capitol. This was later confirmed by a Newsweek story on January 3, 2022, entitled Secret Commandos with Shoot-to-Kill Authority were at the Capitol. Now, I know that's a lot of preliminary groundwork laid before getting into the U.S. Capitol Police's response and actions on January 6th, but you'll hopefully understand why it was necessary before I proceed. Now, I ask you to set aside your understanding of what you believe transpired that day, in addition to your biases about law enforcement in general. So at this point, he throws in a quote, you're now back on that Capitol Lower West Terrace battle line. And then he says, from testimony given in the first Oath Keepers trial, we learned as a uniformed U.S. Capitol Police officer, that it was likely you received no notification from your commanders that there were any planned protest events scheduled and permitted by the U.S. Capitol Police itself on the Capitol grounds that day. U.S. Capitol Police Officer Ryan Salke testified in the Oath Keepers trial that he was only aware something was going on at the White House that day. This is even though the evidence was presented of the actual applications and permits issued by U.S. Capitol Police authorities for staging PA systems and VIP speakers on the Capitol grounds for January 6th, including speeches by members of Congress. Another quote, Congress members, actual U.S. Capitol Police protectees scheduled to speak on U.S. Capitol Police permitted stages, and you, a U.S. Capitol Police officer charged with their security, have no knowledge this was to take place during that day's tour of duty. Additionally, ample advertising in the form of flyers and Internet postings were seen by millions of Americans about not only the rally at the Ellipse for the President's and other speeches, but also scheduled marches to and around the Capitol building those speeches on the Capitol lawn, and even a protest on the steps of the Capitol. U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, Assistant Chief Yogananda Pittman, Head of Protective and Intelligence Operations, the Metropolitan Police Department, the U.S. Park Police, the White House, the Pentagon, the National Guard, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, Sergeants at Arms, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, the FBI, and other federal agencies all knew that tens of thousands of protesters would be descending upon the U.S. Capitol grounds that day. Yet the frontline U.S. Capitol police officers were neither notified nor prepared for what was to come. That's remarkable, isn't it? Steve Baker says, I arrived at the Lower West Terrace battle line 
at exactly 1.19 p.m. The first thing my camera captured was both protesters and police officers receiving first aid. The next thing I registered with my own eyes was the shock and fear in the eyes of those officers defending the barricade line. They were taken by surprise and unprepared, and the U.S. Capitol Police in particular were obviously and woefully untrained for what was taking place. The arrival of reinforcements by the Metropolitan Police Department was another story. They had far more experience in dealing with violent protests in our nation's capital. Most recently, from numerous riots initiated by left-wing groups, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, post-George Floyd's death. The look in their eyes was different, many of whom seemed to relish the engagement and enjoy knocking heads. After an hour of violence and when the violent insurgents were successfully breaching the Lower West Terrace Police Line, U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Tariq Johnson radioing for decontamination tents, water supplies as first aid, reinforcements, redeployment of understaffed U.S. Capitol Police units, and operational direction from Chief Sund and Assistant Chief Pittman, both of whom were in the command center. But Johnson's calls for a plan, any plan, were being ignored. From both audio recordings and transcripts of U.S. Capitol Police radio transmissions obtained by the Epoch Times that I was also made privy to in our collaboration for their story published on January 10th of this year, we can hear Lieutenant Johnson's voice. Quote, If you're not able to get units out here at a certain point, can you advise Unit 400 if you want me to push everybody inside of the lower terrace door and lock it, if we can't get any help on the north side, we're going to have to bring everybody in, and we will have to lock the doors. That's at 1.53 p.m. No response from command. Lieutenant Johnson takes the initiative, and not for the first time that day. Quote, Be sure that there are no weapons left on the lower west terrace. Bring them all inside the doors now. Any weapons that we have, bring them inside. Anyone on the lower terrace now, I need you to fall back and I need you to respond to the attack. We're not going to use lethal force. We can't risk them taking the M4s, automatic rifles, from us. So if you have an M4, I need you to respond on the lower terrace door now. We're not going to be able to keep these people out. All the M4s need to be inside the terrace doors, no M4s out. That's at 1.54 p.m. No response from command. Johnson again. Advising you that all situations here are dire, we're going to prepare to evacuate the lower west terrace and everybody's about to go inside. I'll advise in about two minutes. That's 1.58 p.m. At exactly 2 p.m., Assistant Chief Yogananda Pittman's voice can be heard for the first time all day, saying, Unit 2, at this time, we're ordering a lockdown of the Capitol building. Lock down the Capitol building. 
U.S. Capitol Police Inspector Thomas Lloyd immediately responds to Pittman's order rather derisively, saying that was done a long time ago, as he had previously issued that order almost an hour earlier. Then Lieutenant Johnson urgently begs, can we get in the lower terrace door first before you lock it down? No response from command. At 2.08 p.m., Lieutenant Johnson radios urgently requesting command to give them much-needed direction. He says, I'm telling you what we need. We need some kind of a tactical plan just to divert these breachers so we can get everybody in the lower west terrace door. We do not have any hard gear up here. We need a plan to get these people, these officers, back in the building. They're coming, and we can't stop them from breaching. Assistant Chief Yogananda Pittman is heard on the radio again with a following feckless order saying, Unit 2, at this time, we're ordering a campus-wide lockdown, a campus-wide lockdown, please simulcast. Well, nothing else coming from Pittman could have been more incompetent or utterly useless. By this time, the entire Capitol campus was overrun on all sides by thousands of protesters with unknown intentions. She could see this on her closed-circuit TV screens. All her officers had already been ordered to retreat inside the Capitol by Lieutenant Johnson himself. None were left amongst the already gathered throng to execute her campus-wide lockdown command as tens of thousands of additional rally attendees continue to arrive from the ellipse. Now, the U.S. Capitol Police's beleaguered officers were being ignored by their top commanders. Former Chief Sund has testified that he was busy on the phone with the sergeants at arms, the National Guard, and other agency heads, while Assistant Chief Pittman could see and hear all that was taking place from her command center, closed caption TV videos and radio communications, but she was providing no leadership while using scant and ultimately impotent directives. The undermanned U.S. Capitol Police officers were on their own. At 2.13 p.m., the Capitol's northwest Senate windows and door were breached by the lead provocateurs while many of those officers have been locked outside. Panicked calls are made on radio communications, notifying command that protesters were inside the Capitol building. Some of those made their way toward the occupied Senate and House chambers, while others were working their way to the east side Columbus doors to open those from the inside. With no direction coming from the command center, who will lead the evacuation of the Senate and House members? Did individual U.S. Capitol Police officers behave appropriately, or did their actions incite the crowd to more violent acts? Was the lack of leadership and alleged intelligence failures the result of incompetence or something more nefarious? Could the entire event and subsequent tragedies have been averted? Were they allowed to happen or were they planned? That's the end of part one. Part two 
He says he is to follow soon. Now that is the great Steve Baker, the pragmatic constitutionalist, over at Locals.com, article entitled, Capitol Police Were Sacrificial Pawns on January 6th, Part 1. Now, what we've got coming up is a fascinating look at the testimony of Ray Epps, a guy who has to be a Fed. That's coming up in mere moments here on the Doc Washburn Show. Look, we live in a crazy world, and I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people, were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became a lot better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? For that matter, what can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. SwitchToAmerica.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patreon influencers have come on board SwitchToAmerica.com, and I'm inviting you to join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with a woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website, again, is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And that includes their new product. An even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains of Montana near Yellowstone, this beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics or hormones or vaccines. Think about it. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Switch to America today. SwitchToAmerica.com, dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your information, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. SwitchToAmerica.com. Now it is my great honor to share with you the best-kept secret in American health care. 
having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness or vertigo? What about problems with your blood sugar or psoriasis or migraines? The Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. Also, the migraines went away and never came back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, psoriasis, even migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for a free consultation. They've helped me, they've helped my wife, and they helped so many people that we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and find the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Okay, you ready to save money? on your monthly cell phone bill while doing the right thing? Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. Hey, I know I'm saving money since I came over to Patriot Mobile. Look, when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of being mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment, right to bear arms, sanctity of life, the most important, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. All you have to do is go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team, at 972-PATRIOT, make sure you use promo code DOC for free activation. That's D-O-C, DOC. Ought to be easy to remember, right? Now, if you are a conservative-owned business tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars go to corporate woke agendas, got good news for you. Patriot Mobile now offers competitive business plans to suit company uh, companies of any size. So if that's you, you got a conservative business, you're tired of your money going to liberal causes? Switch to Patriot Mobile Business. Learn more at business.patriotmobile.com or call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Now, always, always, always remember to use the promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. 
That's business.patriotmobile.com or 469-FREEDOM. Okay, now let's take a look at the mysterious Ray Epps. This is from Raheem Kassam's Substack. Now, Raheem Kassam is an interesting fellow. I know, I know, I know. He has an interesting name. Let me tell you about Raheem Kassam. First of all, he's British. He's the editor-in-chief of the National Pulse and writes columns over at Substack. And on a regular basis, he has been featured on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. So I think he is certainly qualified to look into the Ray Epps situation. So here from Raheem Kassam's Substack, article entitled, Ray Epps' January 6th interview gets even weirder than his I orchestrated it text. He says, Ray Epps' January 6th interview is bizarro world. The entire thing reads like an exculpatory public relations effort replete with assistance from committee members, more concerned with helping Epps clear his name than getting to the bottom of his actions that day. But Ray Epps' interview is even stranger than the CYA attempts. Representatives Schiff, Murphy, Aguilar, and Kinzinger were present during the interview, finally conducted January 21, 2022, after months of work by Darren J. Beatty's Revolver.News, among others, which brought Epps's activities on January 5th and 6th to light. Here are the top 12 strange standout moments. Number one, directing Antifa. Ray Epps says early on that he was a member of the Oath Keepers, but that he left because National Leader Stuart Rhodes was trying to direct Antifa. It is amazing how within just a few questions, Ray Epps is already attempting to prove his credentials in the arena of not being an entryist or a Fed by laying out how organizations he was a part of engaged in Fed-style entryist tactics. How convenient. Okay, now I hate it when people use words I have never heard of before. And I'll tell you something. When you take the word entry and add IST to it, yeah, I don't have any idea. Oh, okay. Entryist, noun, a proponent of entryism. Now, that's not going to work for me. Okay, entryism has a whole page over at Wikipedia. It's a political strategy in which an organization or state encourages its members or supporters to join another, usually larger, organization in an attempt to expand influence and expand their ideas and program. If the organization being entered is hostile to entryism, the interests may engage in a degree of subterfuge and subversion to hide the fact that they are an organization in their own right. Aha! Well, now that makes sense. So... 
In other words, is Ray Epps an agent provocateur? Oh, no, 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 I'm a good guy. He recalls, I think it was Portland. It was Portland. I think that's when Antifa had first come out, and we were seeing a lot of things. They were burning things and doing different things on the news, and he, Stuart Rhodes, thought it would be wise if we were to go there and try to direct the, get in with them and direct them to do other things other ways. I didn't agree with that, so we kind of split ways. Now, the person questioning Ray Epps, whose name in the testimony is, the transcript is redacted, hurries along for the matter rather remarkably quickly. Quote, got it. So now I want to fast forward from the couple of years you were in the Oath Keepers to the 2020 general election. Unquote. Hold on a minute. This is a self-professed member of the Oath Keepers who was on the front lines on January 6th telling you about their organization's infiltration attempts, and you want to fast forward? Huh. A few moments later, Representative Kinzinger revisits the topic, saying, when you talked about the Antifa side of things, were you saying his goal was to kind of infiltrate and influence like partner, or was it kind of influence and sabotage or stray differently? Epps responded, I believe he was going to try to turn them to our way of thinking. Now, this is the first of many attempts to establish a fact pattern that suggests Ray Epps himself would never think of infiltrating and sabotaging. In fact, you'll never see Kinzinger be so nice to a supposed Trump supporter as he is throughout this interview with Ray Epps. This is crazy. Okay, number two in the top 12 strange moments in Ray Epps' testimony to the January 6th committee, a father-son trip. This one is a recurring red flag because Epps claims he originally refused to go to D.C. on January 6th before his wife convinced him there might be trouble and that his son might need help. What assistance an elderly man might offer his adult son traveling with his friends is not made clear. By page 13, however, we learn that Epps' wife had booked his travel but had not booked him anywhere to stay. As a result, Epps ended up sleeping on his son's bed at the Washington Marriott while his son Jim's friend slept on the floor. Ray told the committee it was going to be a great vacation and get to see the sights and and show him what I had done with my father earlier in life. Number three of the top ten weird moments in Ray Epps' January 6th testimony. Tourniquets. If any of you take tourniquets on vacation with you, please let me know in the comments because tourniquets... Don't sound like my idea of a great vacation. And yet by page 15, we learned that Ray Epps was texting someone called Nathan Jones for tourniquets, combat gauze, and breathing tubes. And by the way, he's got the uh, screenshots of the transcripts here. Crazy stuff. Epps is then asked 
So it's supposed to be a fun kind of family vacation, but we also see you packing first aid. And Epps replied, like I said before, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Now, at this point, Adam Kinzinger chimes in with yet another highly implausible comparison in an attempt to get Ray Epps off the hook for this bizarre behavior. Kenzinger says, just, Mr. Epps, again, just, would the mindset be comparable to, for instance, I pretty much, wherever I go, I conceal carry. I certainly hope I never have to use it, but I have it just in case. Raheem Kassam says, huh? Carrying tourniquets, gauze, and breathing tubes to the nation's capital during a family vacation is the same thing as concealed carrying? Pull the other one. I guess he means pull my other leg. Number four, top 12 strange moments in Ray Epps' January 6th testimony. Who is Paul Carver? Speeding on past his strange behavior, as the committee did, we find ourselves hearing about one Mr. Paul Carver on page 22. Question. And when you returned back to D.C., what did you all do? What were your steps what were your next steps that day? Ray Epps answer. It was kind of difficult because there weren't a lot of restaurants open, so I'm trying to, oh, yeah, 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 I do remember. We had a gentleman that kept trying to call me while we were gone. He's from Arizona, and I don't, just a second, I can't find it here. I believe his last name is Carver. He had called several times to try to reach us, so I called him back. He wanted to meet us for dinner, and I met him one other time at a VFW, and I didn't really remember him, but that's okay. So we met at a small restaurant and had dinner. Question. So we see in your call records an individual named Mr. Paul Carver on January 5th. Is that the individual that's calling you? Ray Epps answer. It was Paul Carver. Yes, sir. Question. Take us through what happened. What did you do? What did you all do after dinner with Mr. Carver? Raheem Kassam says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! What do you mean after dinner with Mr. Carver? There's some random dude who Ray Epps says he doesn't know, who's calling him and trying to meet up all day, and then they meet up and have dinner, and there are no immediate questions about who this person was." The only other reference to this comes way down on page 74 where Ray Epps is asked, and Mr. Carver, does he work for the FBI or CIA or NSA to your knowledge? And Ray Epps replies, not that I'm aware of, sir. Oh, okay, okay. The questioning quickly turns to the infamous scenes of Ray Epps at the Black Lives Matter Plaza before briefly looping back to Carver. Ray Epps says, I hadn't talked to him before Before that. I mean, I don't know how he would know that we were in D.C., but he kept trying to call me, so when he talked to me, he found out I was in D.C. He may have known. I don't know how he would have found out because I had not talked to him before that since I met him the first time. 
In fact, I didn't know who he was, but he's from Arizona. He was calling me, and we met up. To which the questioner says, okay, thank you. To which Raheem Kassam says, what do you mean, okay, thank you? This random dude from Arizona is calling Ray Epps all day. Ray Epps claims he has no idea who the guy is. Decides to have dinner with this stranger anyway, despite claiming to be such a cautious person that he travels with first aid supplies. And the trail of questions on that matter just ends there? Seriously? Number five in the list of the top 12 strange things about Ray Epps' January 6th testimony. Number five, we need to go into the Capitol. At this point, it's worth revisiting some of Ray Epps' best of moments from January 5th and 6th. As his explanation in his testimony stretches credulity And indeed, as some on social media have noted, he appears to have actually further implicated himself in subsequent text messages to his family. Congressman Thomas Massey had a tweet from December 30th, 2021. He said, how many January 6th protesters were actually working for the federal government? In October, I asked Attorney General Garland while he was under oath and he refused to answer. He looked very nervous and worried when I showed him this video in that hearing. And it was, of course, the video of Ray Epps. So here we see Epps on the night of January 5th after his dinner with stranger Paul Carver and after ostensibly both meeting up with his son and his friend at Black Lives Matter Plaza and then becoming separated again. This happens very often for someone traveling specifically to protect his son. Ray Epps is asked by the January 6th committee, you said that you may get arrested for saying this, that the group needs to go into the Capitol the next day. Why did you think you could be arrested for saying what you were saying? Ray Epps replies, I didn't. I was trying to trying to get some common ground. Ah, so in other words, gaining the trust of the crowd to try to influence them? The same tactic he claims he left the Oath Keepers over? He further explains, I got caught up in the moment before going on to state that A, he secretly believed the U.S. Capitol would be open to visitors the next day. No one believed that, actually, but he claims he did and B, that he did not hear them chanting fed, fed, fed in response to his suggestion. As you can see from the video, they were chanting it about 10 centimeters from his face. That's real close. Another ridiculous stretch of credulity. It was clear that he heard them chanting fed. He looked disappointed and upset when they chanted fed. So like clockwork on page 28, in steps Representative Adam Kinziger who says, it seemed to me that the crowd around you, their focus at that moment was basically trying to incite violence that night. You were trying to stop violence that night. Is that an accurate assessment on my end? Ray Epps answered, yes, sir. Kenzinger said, okay, that's all I have for the moment. Thank you, sir. Raheem Kassam says, huh? He's on camera inciting an invasion of the Capitol. And Kenzinger's takeaway is that he was trying to stop violence? 
even if the next day's events had not transpired the way they did. That is an impossible conclusion to reach, given the evidence. The new Republican-controlled Congress should immediately subpoena Kenzinger himself and force him to publicly account for this ridiculous conclusion slash cover-up. See also page 31. And the question, some people in the crowd started chanting fed towards you. Do you remember that? Epps responds, I don't. I even asked my son. I, I had a hard time believing it at first. I thought it might have been dubbed in or something. I, I didn't hear it. My son said he didn't hear it. To which Raheem Kassam responds, utter blank rubbish. Number six in the top 12 list of strange things from Ray Epps' testimony to the January 6th committee. Are you a Fed, Mr. Epps? At this point, instead of pressing Epps on the ludicrous claims over the night of the 5th, the conversation turns into yet another attempt to clear him of any collusion with authorities. Question. At any point on January 5th, so we've asked you this question about December 27th through January 4th, but now let's just focus on January 5th. Did you coordinate or speak with any law enforcement officials from the FBI? Epps answers, no, sir. Question, the Metropolitan Police Department? Epps answers, no, sir. Question, the CIA or NSA? Epps answers, no, sir. It goes on like this, except remember, Epps has dinners with strangers who call his cell phone, and he also can't hear when someone is shouting fed in his face from a tourniquet's length away. Number seven. In the top 12 list of strange things from Ray Epps' January 6th committee testimony, midnight. On page 33, we learn Ray Epps' son, Jim, had texted his dad asking if he was still out at Black Lives Matter Plaza. Question. Looks like you had a lengthy, or 140 seconds, so what's that? That's not even three minutes. Conversation with your son just after midnight. Is that possible that you guys are separated still at that point, or were you back to the hotel room? Epps responds, yes, it is possible. I had to walk back. Okay, I had to walk back. Does that account for the near two-hour difference between what Epps' son texted him and when he appears to reach the hotel? Not really. Something else strange happens at this point in the conversation. The questioner asks for a break. When they return, Ray Epps has additional counsel. We know that Ray Epps says he stayed at the Washington Marriott. Well, There are indeed a few Marriott's in D.C., but not a lot of Washington Marriott's. There are courtyards by Marriott, A.C. hotels by Marriott, etc. But insofar as hotels named Marriott, there are three biggies. The Washington Marriott, the Washington Marriott Georgetown, and the J.W. Marriott, as indicated in this embedded map in the article. There's also the new Marriott Marquis attached to the D.C. Convention Center where you see the unconventional diner on the map. All right, for those of you scoring it from home. The walk from Black Lives Matter Plaza to Washington Marriott takes 10 minutes. The walk from Black Lives Matter 
Plaza to the JW Marriott takes 12 minutes. The walk between the JW Marriott and the Washington Marriott is 8 minutes. So unless Ray Epps really got turned around and walked 10 blocks in the wrong direction to the Georgetown Marriott or 20 minutes to the Marriott Marquis several times over, the idea that the two hours is accounted for by trying to find his hotel 10 minutes away makes little sense. He might have ambled around, but remember, this is an old dude in a strange city who was just in a fracas with randos at Black Lives Matter Plaza at midnight. His son even texted him at 10.30 p.m., asking his whereabouts, but on page 38, we learned that Epps was still making calls at 12.17 a.m. and 12.19 a.m. to his son and his brother, Scott or Daryl. He oddly can't remember, respectively. This time period, broadly unaccounted for, is never further explored by the committee. But within six hours or so, the trio, Epps, his son, and his son's friend, Zach, were outside the White House, ready for the rally, at the Ellipse. Number eight in the top 12 list of strange things from Ray Epps' January 6th committee testimony is Marines are always in the front. On page 42, Ray Epps says the three of them stayed all the way up to President Trump, which is an odd thing to do for someone who traveled across the country from Arizona ostensibly in part to hear President Trump speak. Why even wait at the ellipse at 6 a.m. if you were just going to leave when the keynote speaker started? To their mild credit, this question was asked by the committee, though the answer raises more questions. All right, so here's the question. Why did you leave when President Trump started speaking? Ray Epps answers, there was a group that started running toward the Capitol. I mean, They were moving quite fast, and so I just thought, you know what? I want to be in the front. I'll get up there. And on the way there, I noticed that it was some of the same people that were there on the night before. They had blowhorns. They were trying to incite people and stir things up. I thought it important that I get up there, and I did. Raheem Kassam responds, right, because the guy who couldn't find the Washington Marriott for two hours was going to single-handedly stop a running group, coincidentally the same people from last night, from breaching the Capitol. But wait, it gets more ridiculous. Ray Epps says, I wasn't walking with anybody. I called a few people out on the way there that had mega mega horns, you know, megaphones that were trying to incite things and, you know, tried to get them to stop, and then we were at the Capitol. Now, this is some grade A horse blank for several reasons. Number one, revisit the video. Epps is the one directing people to the Capitol. Number two, he claims to have reached there in 20 minutes. No, that's about a 35-minute walk without crowds. Number three, He admits that despite flying to Washington to protect his son, he was once again separated from his son at this point. He says, I don't know where they were. 
And again, do remember, this is the guy who took two hours to find the Washington Marriott, suddenly managing to sprint through a heavy crowd to the Capitol, stopped to use the restroom, and call a few people out on the way, all within 20 minutes. Impressive. Well, wait, there's more. On page 46, we are treated to some real Ray Epps gold. He has asked, you said you wanted to get out in front, but what were you trying to get out in front of as you started walking to the Capitol? Ray Epps responds, well, there's a few different reasons. One, we were freezing our butts off. It was cold out. If we were going to get in the Capitol, I wanted to be inside. My son since has referenced the same thing. We weren't dressed properly for it. Now remember, Raheem Kassam reminds us, this is Mr. Always Prepared we're talking about. The guy with the tourniquets, whose wife sent him to protect their precious boy. He says he wanted to get inside the Capitol because he was cold. The next part, I promise you, despite how it sounds, is not even a joke. Ray Epps continues saying this. Two, I didn't want any fighting to break out or any, you know, it going in the wrong direction. Marines are always in the front, not in the back. Yeah, okay, Ray. Marines are always in the front, but not because they're cold. Of course, just when you think you cannot suspend any more disbelief on this, Representative Kinzinger pipes in. Writer's note, I feel as if I've started to write satire or fiction now, but this is all real. Kinzinger says, Mr. Epps, would you say that was a pretty high adrenaline moment, kind of, you know, a lot going on? You're trying to take in a lot of details and act. And also, was there still maybe a concern at this point in the back of your mind that there could be, and I know I keep going back to this, but there could maybe be Antifa seated throughout trying to provoke something bigger. Was that a concern? Kinzinger, in other words, is both accidentally right about Antifa presences on January 6th, but also attempting to allow Ray Epps an escape from his own behavior, in his own words, being out front and inside the Capitol. Has Kinzinger metaphorically blown any other January 6th interviewee in such a fulsome and borderline disgusting fashion? Number nine of the strangest incidences of Reaps's January 6th committee testimony. I also orchestrated it. Now, this is the part so many have already zoned in on. Epps is asked, so it looks like around 9 a.m. your nephew texts, texts you, and then at 2.12 p.m. you text back, I was in the front with a few others. I also orchestrated it, and they have the screenshot here. Boom, surely, case closed. Ray Epps admits in writing, in his own words, in his own texts, to his own family, to orchestrating actions on January 6th, 
after dinner with a stranger, hours missing the night before, and, of course, the plethora of video evidence showing him personally inciting riots and criminal actions. Charge him? Surely. But no. For reasons we are never told, Ray Epps is both a free man and getting a free ride from Adam Kinzinger. Question, what did you mean by orchestrate? What did you orchestrate? Ray Epps' answer, I just meant that I got, you have to understand our relationship, uncle, nephew. We hunt together. We fun with each other. We do that kind of stuff. What I meant by orchestrate, I helped get people there. Wait, what? Was that Joe Biden responding? What the heck does his relationship with his nephew have to do with it? And what does we fun with each other mean? Or perhaps bigger still, how does orchestrate mean help get people there without also meaning incitement? Those questions will obviously be asked next by the enterprising representatives of the January 6th committee, right? Wrong. The most Ray Epps got back was, quote, I'm just trying to understand why that word orchestrated was used because it sounds like you're sort of adopting the whole thing, including the stuff that you were walking away from, unquote. Actually, it's the stuff he incited, but who cares about the verbiage, huh? It's not like we're attempting to investigate the so-called greatest attack on American soil since 9-11 or whatever else they're calling it these days. This is like having Mohammed Atta on the stand and asking him if traffic to the airport was bad. Ray Epps equally bizarrely responds, You would have to understand the relationship between me and my nephew. It's just, yeah, I took credit for it, but I didn't know what I was taking credit for. Right, there it is again, an admission. Book him. But again, no, nothing, not one attempt by the January 6th committee to actually hold someone accountable who admitted to being involved multiple times. On page 65, Ray Epps says, I shouldn't have used that word. In response, he's asked, what is a better word now? He says, I helped get people there. The reply is, of course, incredible. The reply, and I quote, I see, fair enough, I appreciate that, thank you, unquote. Oh, that's fair enough, is it? What about the hundreds of detainees held without charge or release and who have been treated like dogs for doing far less than Ray Epps did that day? Is it fair enough for them? Is it fair enough to the people whose lives have been irretrievably ruined by that day? Is it fair enough to history and the public record that this kabuki theater is allowed to sail by unridiculed, unfisked, and unabated? Number 10 of the top 12 strange things in Ray Epps' testimony to the January 6th committee, more strangers. See, Raheem Kassam read the whole 96-page report for us. So he says, You're 3,500 words and 69 pages in with just 500 words to read, so you might as well stick this out. Believe me, this is the brief version. The full document is 25,000 words. You're welcome. And so he has a screenshot of testimony here. He says, does the below seem odd from a guy worried about infiltrators and trouble? 
And here's the quote. Somebody told me, you need to take your Trump, your Trump hat off and hide it. I said, why? And they said, well, they just shot two Trump supporters down the street because they had their Trump stuff on. So I put that away. I found a gentleman that had just pulled up. He had a Trump hat on. He was in a car, and I told him, I'd be glad to pay you to take me to my room. Well, we just had a shooting down the street, and they shot two Trump supporters. So he said he would do it. He didn't want it to be paid. He took me to my hotel, and I went upstairs. Raheem Kassam responds, Oh, yeah, someone told me they were shooting Trump supporters. So I got in a car with a random Trump supporter, but also people were infiltrating and pretending to be Trump supporters. And this Trump supporter didn't know I was a Trump supporter because I had taken off my hat on account of the shooting of Trump supporters. But he still agreed to drive me to my hotel, which we couldn't find. Yeah, vastly plausible, sure. Number 11 in the top 12 list, Strange Things from Ray Epps. January 6th Committee Testimony, number 11. I'm not sure how you got that. By now, you understand the importance of going through all this. The next few pages concern the text messages Ray Epps received on the days in question. See if this line of questioning feels appropriate to you. Mr. Carver, does he work for the FBI or CIA or NSA, to your knowledge? Ray Epps, answer, not that I'm aware of. Question. Do you recognize a Mr. Christopher Hoopke? Ray Epps answer, this is something to do with Twitter and something to do with Twitter. I don't know what it is. I didn't open it, and I haven't responded. The questioner says, thank you. Another question. There were two incoming text messages at around 3.52. They actually might be the same text messages because they're both at the exact same time from a redacted number. You did not respond back, but do you know what this number is? Rayev's response, I do not. Okay, is response from the questioner. Another question. And then the last number where we saw outgoing and incoming text was redacted number. We've done our own research on this, and there has been public reporting that this sometimes shows up on people's phone records. And it's not a specific number for anyone. It just sometimes shows up on phone records. So Ray Epps says, I've never heard of it. I couldn't find it on my phone either. I'm not sure how you got that. Raheem Kassam says, do any of these seem like normal interactions over phone records, incoming calls, or texts? Or am I off my chump? I better find out what that means. Crazy or insane. I guess that's British. Okay. He says, for instance, what do you mean a number just shows up on call records? And how are these interviewers not following up on records for which Ray Epps claims to have no further information? Not even, hey, well, would you mind looking into that for us and figuring out who you talk to, please? Nope. Instead, it's just, okay, cool, no worries. And number 12 of the top 12 strange moments in Ray Epps' January 6th committee testimony is entitled, We're Off the Record, right? 
On page 96, the conversation comes to a close, but not without one more acutely awkward moment between Ray Epps' counsel and his interviewer. So enjoy this one, and here's a screenshot. Mr. Bishak, whoever that is, says, I just wanted to comment. I'm just a little bit envious of that nice couch you got in your office. I don't have that in my office. I mean, damn, I got to go to Washington, D.C. Ray Epps responds, I've got got a quick question. Redacted response, Mr. Epps, yes. Ray Epps says, I, okay, we're off the record, right? Redacted says, let's go off. We're off the record, correct, yes. We've gone off the record. Whereupon at 4.08 p.m. the interview was concluded. Raheem Kassam says, Perhaps I've lost my mind, but none of Ray Epps' testimony rings normal to me. None of it carries the same tone as other interviews given to the January 6th committee. There's no probing. Ray Epps is hurried along between timelines and subjects. He offers bizarro explanations and is never pulled up on them. In other words, nobody tries to hold him accountable for any of the bizarre things he says. And more than anything, more questions are raised as a result of this interview than those that were answered. Were any answered? Is Ray Epps still searching for the Marriott Hotel? Has he found his son yet? Is he at a local ball game in Arizona with a fanny pack loaded with gauze and breathing tubes? Maybe we'll find out when they admit Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy. In the meantime, there is something far more pernicious about this interview than I had ever imagined when it was first quietly released. And then he has the uh, the bold red letters, meaning there's a link, a hyperlink. Read the whole thing for yourself if you wish. So you got the hyperlink there. And don't forget to share this article and comment below. Well, the article is that Raheem Kassam's substack, and it is entitled, Ray Epps' January 6th interview gets even weirder than his I orchestrated it text. Man, does it ever. I mean, good grief. It is... Uh, It's really strange. I'm uh, filled with consternation to the extent that I think it's about time that I say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. And it's brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. Believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car truck, van, or SUV of your choice online and have it delivered to your front door no matter where you live in the continental USA. Okay, so today's tweet of the day, a guy named Edwin has a um, 
14-second video of Dementia Joe. So let's check, see out what he's saying here. And by the way, even if I didn't want to do this, I'd be in real trouble. My daughter's a social worker, and this is what she does. And so if I didn't, I'd be in real trouble with my Ashley. You got an Ashley? We got an Ashley. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. You know, he always says no joke. I'm not joking. His daughter has not been a social worker since 2012, but that's okay. It's just old Joe, and he lies about literally everything. But you know that. Hey, you've been listening to episode. Oh, by the way, so January 6th was not an insurrection. It was a fedsurrection. The whole thing was a put-up job. And more will be coming out about that. You've been listening to episode 324 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, Directed by Mick Messy, this has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the Tenth. Well, that's the way it is. Monday, January 16th, 2023.